You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is British journalist Nick Cohn. Nick is the author of five books, Putting the Rest of Us to Shame. His 1999 book, Cruel Britannia, reports on the sinister and the preposterous. The 2003 book, Pretty Straight Guys, which I believe is a, is a critique of New Labour. Yes, it was, yes. Takes, takes me back. <laughs> What's Left, how the, how the Left Lost Its Way, or How Liberals Lost Their Way, from 2007. Waiting for the Etonians, reports from the sickbed of liberal England was published in 2009. And You Can't Read This Book, which is about free speech and censorship, was published in 2012. I've only actually read two of those. I've read What's Left and You Can't Read This Book. They're the best ones, Iona. <laughs> and um, Nick is a regular columnist for The Observer. Um, he also regularly writes for The Spectator and um, for Standpoint, and I'm sure for a number of other publications. He's had a long um, and distinguished career. Clearly not that long, because you're only nine years older than me. So okay. clearly you're very young. Welcome, Nick. My pleasure, Ryan. So I wanted to um, begin by talking to you a little bit about What's Left, which I've just reread over the past couple of days. I read it when it first came out in 2007, and I've just reread that, and um, you can't read this book. And I am quite startled by how fresh both those books are. I think this is unfortunate <laughs> in many ways. I mean, it's fortunate for you and your royalties, but I think it's unfortunate for the state of politics that so many of the critiques that you make of unhelpful um, trends on the left are uh, still feel to me to be current. How do you feel that things have changed since you've written the book? And which kinds of things have stayed, do you think, have stayed the same? Well, uh, in Britain's case, certainly, I don't, I don't want to generalize about uh, the rest of uh, the West. The type of left-wing politics that I was warning against uh, when I wrote What's Left, that is a very, um, in my view, a very uh, uh, Western-centered um, politics that takes no, uh, very unprincipled politics that says any regime or movement which is anti-Western, I mean anti-American, anti-British, so to speak, can't be can't be all wrong is our ally even if they are fascistic uh even if they are um support versions largely of islam which are um uh, misogynist homophobic uh, uh inquisitorial in that they don't allow democratic state that type of left has taken over the, the, the main opposition in party in Britain, the Labour Party, although I think its days are now numbered. So at the time I wrote this book, and I got into so much trouble, and I, I was virtually driven out of some some left wing magazines for writing it. And and the, the 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 criticism from very high up on on the British left was, well, look, Nick is just writing about marginal figures. Um, this is the fringe. It doesn't matter. To write about this is is worse than obsessing with trivialities. To write about this is to give aid to the right wing uh, rather than taking on the right wing, which is the job of any decent leftist. And um, sadly, uh, for the sake of my country, if not for 
the sake of my royalty. Sadly, that critique was was wholly wrong because anyone with any knowledge of of, of history knows that the fringe, that what starts on the fringe, can un, end up on the main screen. That virtually every idea we take for granted today was once a fringe idea, and so if you like, you know all kinds of name uh, names for it. Um, uh, uh, the regressive left is probably the best. A, a left wing that doesn't believe in progress, that doesn't believe in um, uh, in anti-fascism, um, that will go along with the most repressive movements as long as they are anti-Western. That has become, or certainly became, the the, the dominant force in in British left wing politics. I want to just I, I want to kind of anticipate the criticism that um, I I know some people will may feel as they're listening to this podcast more generally that this is just left bashing and therefore it's 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 just aiding and abetting the right. Well, it can be obviously, but the the, the, the you know uh, there are always right wing people who will seize on any criticism of left-wing politics. As a, someone once said, it may even have been me, that the, 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 the right looks for convert, the left looks for traitors. The right is very good at looking for converts, is very good at saying, well, I know, look at Iona, she's criticizing the left. We, we, we will embrace her, we will help her, we will find ways to publish her. That, that, that is true. The problem is, and it's a problem that has been faced in Britain in probably its most extreme cases, the, there's no such thing as the left, any, any more than a such thing as the right. There are huge divisions, and always have been, and huge divisions on principle. And what enables the far left to take over is this notion that you can't have arguments on the left. There should be no criticism on the left, and we are the true left and the pure left. And the second point against that is the arguments against what we've seen in Britain are or used to be left-wing arguments. For instance, Jeremy Corbyn, who's still the leader of the Labour Party here, uh, allies with... Is, it's, it's just astonishing that he did, hasn't resigned yet. Well, we're waiting for a leadership election to, to 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 work to to work its way through. It's taking it's taking a long time. But the arguments against him are left wing arguments, or used to be. You cannot possibly um, uh, uh, support regimes like the Iranian regime and say you believe in women's rights, for instance. You can mm. certainly de- uh, denounce Israel, and there are a thousand and one good reasons to denounce it. But you cannot engage in the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories of fascism and uh, of, uh, of, of radical Islam. Uh, you can um, call for um, the redistribution of wealth, wealth in society, but you can't, as the British left has tended to do, just concentrate money on the middle class. These are left-wing arguments. You know, mm-hmm. there's no, there's no uh, right-wingers may, or some right-wingers, the worst right-wingers may, um, for instance, look at religious dislike of homosexuals uh, and religious prejudice against homosexuals and gays and lesbians and trans and whatever, and and use it as a debating tool if they don't like the religions, they don't like Islam, but they, you know, on the whole, they don't believe in it. They're they're just using it opportunist, opportunistically. Uh, the problem with the, my my friend and colleague uh, Margaret Nawaz came up with this wonderful term, the regressive left, is they are no longer a left which believes in universal human freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and the argument for universal human freedom used to be an argument from the left. Perhaps the way left-wing politics is going in the rich world, perhaps it isn't. But I would say it is a very, very, even now, even in Britain, this is a very, very contested space. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I think that there are a lot of right-wing ambulance chasers out there. Oh yes, very very nice way of putting it, Iona. Waiting waiting to collect the bruised Samaritans of the um, left on left pogroms. <laughs> but, 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 but but also, Iona. I mean, the way what has changed beyond recognition from when I I I first wrote that book is the right. 
Mm. Um, We now have Trump. We now have law and justice. We now have Orban. We now have Modi. We now have, um, well, we'll see what happens in Britain, but there are some very, very illiberal and anti-democratic tendencies within the Brexit movement and the Conservative government we we have here. And that that is a different world. And what I try to do the whole time and try to emphasize the whole time is the similarities between the worst of the left and the worst of the right mm. and and not left not let not let uh, right wing writers right wing intellectuals off the hook um because many of the people who uh would deplore you know the left going along with leftists. Sorry, not the lefty. I'm I, I'm breaking my own rules right away. Leftists going along with Iran will quite happily make excuses for Orban in Hungary, where there's a huge attack going on on freedom for the press, or uh, and there's there's a conspiracy theory, there's um, uh, uh, assaults on democracy, all the things that they quite rightly will criticize the worst of the left for unless you criticize it yourself in uh, on the right then you are as you say just an ambulance case right i mean i i hear many people on the on the right critiquing the left and making it sound as though opportunism double standards about freedom of speech moral kind of relativism and hypocrisy that all of those things are leftist phenomena whereas these are human phenomena um, this is the ugly side of politics yeah uh and uh, uh above all tribalism above all the inability to um call out uh uh breaches of principle by your own side because it is your own side I mean, I, I do think that that is a is a, is a hopeless uh, way to behave. Uh, I mean, just 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 morally at the level, at the level of the individual, um, you 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 should be very very wary of the tom toms of the tribe and the tribe insisting. Well, look, uh, this this takes t- t- takes me back to where we were. Essentially, what was said to me when I wrote what's left was just simply, Nick, you shouldn't be looking at this. You know, uh, this is our side, and yes, there's some ghastly people on. Um, and what uh, and what they fail to understand, just as you know, the Republican, the the establishment Republicans fail to understand with Trump. If you don't take these ideas on early, if you don't prepare your arguments against them, if you don't give your supporters some kinds of inoculation against them. The fringe will become the mainstream, and they will rush in unopposed. And that's happened. That's happened across the uh, the Western world. I would say on left and right. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, I I have fo- I've been following Indian politics much more closely than UK politics over the past several years. Yes, and um, I think that what we see in India is rising a rising tide of fascism. Um, and I use that word advisedly. Uh, well, there are all. I mean, my my Indian friends will be are the first to point out that there were always elements on the uh, in Hindu nationalism that looked to fascist. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's not a word I throw around, but it is it is terrifying how you can use identity. Uh, it's a Hindu identity, but a Hindu nationalist identity, uh, how you can use that and declare how anyone who doesn't share that identity is 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 not a true citizen, is uh, 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 or, or 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 is an enemy. Um, yes, I think I think uh, people people there should be you know, if anything there should be less reporting on Trump's America and a lot more reporting on Modi's India. Yeah, I'm going to just plug my cousin Zubin Madden's series. He's doing a podcast series on fascism in India. Um, It's a very scholarly and uh, carefully argued uh, series. And I'll I'll put a link to that in the show notes, because I think people should be more aware of what's going on under Modi. So uh, you talked about illiberal tendencies that are that you've seen clearly evident in 
on the Brexit side of things. Could you say more about that? Well, we've had uh, uh, it falls into two um, two boxes, if you like. One is rhetorical; the other is institutional. At the rhetorical level, it has been people who don't support Brexit are uh, traitors, are saboteurs, are enemies of the people. This is this is Jacobin language. This is uh, Leninist, uh, Maoist language. It is and fascist language as well. It is if you don't agree with us, uh, then you are not an opponent. You are you are a traitor to your country. Um, uh that has been very widespread um and that is that is that that is quite frightening because the whole point about democracy is is that the minority uh has the right to argue and the right to be heard without being cast beyond the bounds of the national community and that that has come in and that is a true um uh, nationalist uh, way of, of of treating dissent. Institutionally, we've seen the most extraordinary thing. We've seen Boris Johnson try to suspend Parliament to get his Brexit through and fail. We've seen attacks on the judiciary, the independent judiciary, attacks on the independent civil service, increasingly now attacks on the BBC. And so again, it's not it's not the same as in India or in Poland or in Hungary or or in the US, uh, you know you can't you can't make these vast generalizations because each country is different. But there there, there is again or, um, this sense of you toe the line, you go along with what um, the, the 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 state wants, or we will get you, we will come for you, you you will be punished. How that's going to rinse out, I don't know, but I do know this that. A version of Britishness, of Englishness, which held Britain and England to be tolerant, um, uh, decent, uh, not the type of country, a, a, a moderate empirical country. It doesn't get caught up in these wild ideological ideas like Nazism, communism. I think that that myth, that national myth about my country is completely gone, is dead and buried, not just by Brexit, but by the fact that the far left could take over the Labour Party. Um, on both sides, th- that myth has shattered. Mm. Could you, well, I, I have a lot of educated guesses about the, this, but, um, and I actually voted uh, Lib Dem in the last elections by post, Simon Jewelsidson of the UK and Argentina. Right. So I haven't lived in Britain for a long time. Um, I've been living in Argentina and then more recently in India. In fact, I'm moving back to London in uh, at Easter. Right. Well, we, we, we must have a coffee, Iona. That would be absolutely lovely. Um, but I... Um, so I'm, sure this I podcast, I, 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 I'm sure this podcast isn't really here to arrange your lunch dates. <laughs> well, why not? It's, it's, why not? Indeed, <laughs> I mean, uh, more weighty topics, I think, uh, are in order as well. <laughs> um, returning to the more weighty topics, I so even though I haven't been, I confess that I haven't been following British politics extremely closely because my attention has been focused on India. That topic has uh, been preoccupying and even obsessing me over the past two years. Um, but I, um, I have noticed Jeremy Corbyn basically siding with almost every totalitarian regime that I particularly despise, um, from Chavez to the Ayatollahs to Putin. And um, as a result, I felt that I couldn't, I couldn't vote for Labour whilst they were still under his leadership, and I voted Lib Dem. Um, could you tell me? Uh, could you tell me for our listeners more about your uh, your objections to Corbyn and the kind of Corbynist cult that I have definitely noticed on social media, at least? Well, yes, uh, the cult side of it. I mean, look, uh, uh, a friend of mine who's a very good science science, science journalist pointed out you can you can find cult like. Uh, 
tendencies in any movement, uh, in any political, religious movement. Mm-hmm. You can see people within it who are, uh, uh, have blind obedience, will say or do anything, and so on. Uh, it is so you know, not all Labour supporters, uh, not all Labour members by any means, is it fair to describe them like that? The cult-like thing is this, is it's the combination of what I mentioned at the beginning, the combination of support for the most vicious and often the most reactionary regime, as long as they're anti-Western. I don't think the Labour Party would support Modi mm. or or would support um, Orban. Right. Uh, but uh, uh, Orban, because he's... But they would support Assad, they would support the Ayatollahs in Iran, obviously Maduro. Uh, the combination of that with this, they almost paint him as like he's Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that lightly, that he is preaching justice and peace, we don't deserve him, uh, he's come down to England to save us, but the Pharisees and Pontius Pilate and uh, have turned on him in the media and crucified him. That is, I mean, it is, it is, it reeks of a, of a kind of a Protestant millennial uh, uh, cultism. Uh, that whole side of it, it's, it's over now. I think I own mm. because they, they took such a hammering at the last election, and I think the bulk of Labour Party members are moving away to a more saner and less intellectually disgraceful version of leftism. Right. I I I wonder whether that is a wider tendency that we're seeing and, and that might explain some of uh, Bernie Sanders' popularity? Uh, yes, I, I, I think that's true. But I, I, I should add, in fairness to, to Bernie Sanders, that he, he, he uh, agree with him or disagree with him, you know, he, he, would, he, would, he has never justified... Um, oppression mm-hmm. in Venezuela. He's always spoken out against it. He's just a f- on a far higher moral level to Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell, Diane Abbott, leads of the British who left. It, it is very, very unfair to um, uh, uh, paint him with the same brush. Oh, yes. Brush. No, I, I didn't mean to paint him with the same brush at all. In fact, my point was the opposite, which is that I think that perhaps Sanders' popularity is a reflection of... Um, the American public's um, tiring of identity politics, that that kind of strain of leftism, because it seems to me like he he himself, I mean, not some of his surrogates are are more typical of this identitarian and anti-imperialist left, but I think he himself represents an old-fashioned, class-conscious, economic um, leftist policy. Yeah. I think that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Um, th- there are similar divisions here. Uh, when Corbyn goes, and he'll be gone in six weeks or so, uh, he, as I say, this this kind of Christ-like aura his supporters work to give him, when the, per- the personality cults hit their biggest moments of decision is when their personality goes. So, And there are lots and lots of divisions here. And there are plenty of people here who would emphasize um, the importance of, you know, improving schools, improving wages, improving healthcare uh, above uh, what is called identity politics. Though always remember, you know, Donald Trump is leading a white identity politics in America. You know, it's not, it's not, a, you know, uh, it, it's, it, it's a slight, it's a slight um, a corruption of language. Identity politics is all, always comes down to mean some hysteric on a campus screaming X, Y, and Z, and you can't do this and you can't do that. I mean, it, identity politics, nationalism is, is an identity politics. Nationalism is by far and away the most important identity politics of the past 200 years. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. Uh, and, 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 and it's the identity politics of the right that are, that are shaping the world at the moment. Uh, yeah, in a quite terrifying way. I would say, especially in India, it's it's clearly Hindu identity politics that that um, the BJP are relying upon, and the the protests against the recent Indian protests 
Um, the protesters are waving the Indian flag, reading the preamble to the constitution, singing the national anthem, um, and always they are stressing the fact that it's about it's not about ident it's not about specific ethnic identities. It's just one civic national identity. It's about being Indian. So that is the mm. that is a kind of a leftist stance which is completely uh, anti-identity politics. And where the right are the ones playing the identity politics game. Indeed, yeah. I mean, if I could tell you how it works, I mean, in a funny way, social media is just a disaster for all of it. Because what happens here is um, both sides scrabble to find reasons to be offended, scrabble to find ways to motivate their supporters um, uh, by showing them how. Uh, subhuman, uh, alien, their opponents are. And so here's just an example. On the right, they they will scour Britain, they they will scour social media to find one person on Twitter saying people who voted for Brexit were stupid. Um, And then that becomes Remainers think that Leave voters were stupid. On the left, there's a thing going on today as we're talking Allegedly, and the whole thing, of course, might be faked, at a block of flats in Norwich in the east of Britain, someone put up a notice saying, where's the effect of foreigners weren't welcome? You can only speak English now because of Brexit. And that has blown up to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people saying this is what leavers are like. And what worries me about someone like Modi or indeed someone like Trump, Modi can find... um, I remember looking at Hindu nationalism in quite a way back now. There's a constant search to find reasons to be offended, constantly the smallest little thing to set off, to to keep your your supporters going in the profitable state of rage, a real or imagined uh, insult to Hindu India, uh, a real or imagined uh, slight from uh, an Indian Muslim, and the whole thing blows up. I mean, all these movements, national, national, radical Islam is the same. Um, PC examinations of microaggressions or micro, um, uh, uh, you know, breaches of etiquette on on sex or race or gender—they're all the same. You seize on something tiny and use it to whip up your supporters. Um, it's very cynically done. Right. I really, it's one of the modern, the contemporary tendencies that I most hate is the idea that four people saying something on Twitter is somehow news. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, I wonder if as the world gets used to new technologies, I wonder if people are just going to stop thinking that automatically. You, you know, four people saying something is not news. The fact that you, you, when you or I are young, I'm sure we made complete fools of ourselves all the time. I certainly did, but yes, it wasn't. I still pres- do. It wasn't. Pre- <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, it, well, we, well, you have to be more careful now, Iona, because it, now it is all preserved on social media. I know. You know the fact. It's too late. The fact that <laughs> yeah, the fact that the fact that a woman in the public eye has a picture of herself naked, you know, when she was twenty, you know, so what. You know, the fact that a, a man has said something stupid or 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 sexist or racist when he was twenty, so what? Because people will say, "Well, everyone did that. Everyone's done something stupid." Um, or whether we're we're going to so that's that's one version of the future. One version is people just relax and say, "Don't be ridiculous," you know. Uh, the other version is we just get more and more sectarian, more and more hyper, and everyone trolls their opponents or, or or people in the public side profile to find anything wrong they've done and that in that in itself becomes news like the four people saying something on twitter is is news i think it's particularly dangerous that the tendency to video people and then put tiny video clips up and those can really quickly go viral with yeah. with explosive and potentially terrifying effects for the people who well, well there was an example of those catholic students in washington and and the clip was done to make them look like they were um uh abusing a, a native american yeah. and and when you saw when you saw the full video the exact yeah it was a completely different story 
Um, be, well, soon I, anyway, we're going to be moving into a world where of deep fakes, where people can fake video. Um, deep fakes are already here. I've seen some very impressive ones. So there's something to look forward to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think it might lead to a complete cynicism. So I did uh, I did notice this recently. Um, there, uh, there was a shooting at Shaheen Bagh, the women-led uh, protest in Delhi. And mm-hmm. there's a picture, that a photo that has gone viral, which has the shooters in the foreground. And in the background are a row of police just standing. Um, and some of them are leaning on their lattes and looking very relaxed while this guy is pointing his gun at the protesters. And when I shared this, a lot of people said to me, meh, could be Photoshop. And, you know, I've been fooled before by photos and videos. I don't believe yeah. any of this. So I think that it will, there is both the danger that people will um, naively believe things that are actually faked. And there's also the danger that we will we will in fact lose our lose our ability to know what's going on in the world because we will no longer be able to trust photos and videos as evidence. I don't want to deny that we're in a new world, but I mean, if you go back to the 1930s, say, uh, there was mass lying, mass propaganda. Mm-hmm. It's not as if it's not as if humanity hasn't confronted these problems before. Right. Um, uh, I, I go back to what I said about the problems of the British right. A lot, of, a, a lot of what needs to be done is institutional work, is um, protecting uh, and promoting uh, reliable sources of news of their own um, ethical standards, uh, reliable uh, intellectual work in universities, and so on. Uh, again, with again with very with very very high standards and. Is as long as you can do that, then then you, then you know you can't force people. No, no one can force people to um, read a quality website. No one can force people to uh, uh, say, "I don't want to have uh, a hyper left or a hyper right uh, Facebook feed, Twitter feed, uh, news service." But you've got to have have societies where, where where the alternative is possible, and then you've got to have politicians and political movements who are reality based, who uh, are not based on on peddling fairy stories, uh, ped- peddling fantasies, often very dark fantasies and fairy stories as well. Um, it's it, it's not as if I I, I I just got I'm sure you I'm sure you weren't I know I just got uh, uh, I just thought listening to you for a moment there's a danger of sink, sinking into fatalism and despair mm-hmm. and oh what oh, can no. we do nothing 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 can be done <laughs> you know I'm sure I'm sure you've never dreamed of uh, uh, of that and uh, no absolutely not I'm going to go down fighting and it's one of the things that most annoys me on Twitter actually is when I say. Um, I, I, I'm denouncing something that I think is nonsensical and people and I say, well, we should stand up against this and people say, well, good luck with that. We can't because X and Y, because these people are already in power or these people already have too much influence uh, or whatever it might be. And I, I am really impatient with those kinds of counsels of despair. I just find that very lazy. Well, yeah, it's... Uh... You can't. If you genuinely believe that, you have to retire from public life. It's no good saying, "Right, I'm a. I, I speak for this tendency or that tendency or that political movement." And all I can say is, "Oh God, it's all hopeless. There's nothing that can be done." <laughs> because what really is the point of you then? I mean, why are you doing this? Why don't you just go away and uh, you know? become a farmer or something or an interior designer or a flower arranger or yeah, you know nothing a, wrong with a, that. <laughs> a fitness instructor you know there's all kinds of other things you can do um security guard I, there's, there's thousands thousands of these things um but it, it, you know we've we, we've had what what the what your opponents want you to do is not necessarily convert to their point of view i mean they like it if you do they don't particularly want that's 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 the maximum for them what they normally want you to do is just say we've lost it's hopeless there's no point in struggling there's no point in going on anymore they're more than happy with that Mm -hmm. 
that's 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 why you get uh 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 i mean it's massive in britain at the moment you've got to just give up on the european union well really do we well let's see what happens i'm certainly not you know uh uh, uh removing my opposition to you i'm certainly not saying that uh, uh uh i'm going to do nothing while british workers jobs are put on the line while british living standards are put on the line while the capacity of Britain to provide half halfway decent public services is put on the line no you know um but most of, an awful lot of lot of time your your opponents just uh, are more than happy for you to say they've won future struggle is is uh, is useless so i do want to come back to the topic of brexit but before i forget i wanted to talk a little bit going back to your book what's left um about perhaps the most controversial part of the book, I'm guessing, which is uh, your support for the Iraq war. And in fact, one of the reasons why I like the book so much is that um, I was one of the few people who was, who felt that that, um, um, it was necessary to intervene in Iraq and in order to depose Saddam Hussein because he was threatening a genocide and major environmental, major irreparable environmental damage and a completely totalitarian fascist state. Could you tell me something about the reactions to, to your support for the Iraq war at the time and your views about intervention, um, the problems with interventionism versus pacifism? Well, uh, I don't know. I, I, I feel as if I'm a terrible writer who, who can't explain myself because that book is not a book written in, or the chapters on Iraq, I think there's two or three chapters on Iraq, were, was not su- written in support of the War of 2003. It came out of me uh, looking at the anti-war movements and saying, well, hold on, hold on. Why, not just in Britain, but in France, in Italy, in America, everywhere, why is it that uh, one, most people refuse to see Saddam Hussein states what it is, um, where, wa- where was the solidarity with Iraqis who wanted something better, who may well, incidentally, and many did actually, uh, have, dis- have been against the, the American invasion of 2003, but were not um, supporters of totalitarianism. Why, and it wasn't just on the left here, but why across the board was there an anti-war movement in Britain led by open admirers of Saddam Hussein and of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood? So it was what, the, the, this goes back to why this is a left-wing argument. What has happened to solidarity? What has happened to internationalism, to a belief in universal human rights? And that's, that's what drove the book. It wasn't particularly, or, or, or not to my mind, uh, a defense of what George W. Bush did in 2003. It was, it was bouncing off that. And, and so then once you, once, once you start thinking like that, you start, you start, uh, saying, well, you know, uh, Move on from Iraq. Forget about Iraq. What about Russia? Why is it that, as well as the European far right who love Putin and the American, uh, large Trump and large parts of the American far right love Putin because he's white, he's aggressive, he's, you know, uh, uh, passes anti-gay laws. Uh, he uh, is restoring the Orthodox Church, uh, restoring Zardom, if you like, or echoing Zardom. Why, why are so many on the European left willing to make excuses for him? Why, when Julian Assange essentially operates as a Russian agent uh, and intervenes on Trump's behalf in the 2016 US presidential election, why is it left-wing people who, who are defending him? And you go back again to the same problem of um, you don't see Russian liberals uh, Russian dissidents as your allies. You have no solidarity. You have no fellow feeling for them, just as you don't in Iran or, or pretty much any, any country where their concerns, their real lived experience, um, doesn't fit into your Chomsky view of how the world is organized. 
Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to imply that you were an apologist for the Bush-Blair regime. The book goes into quite a lot of detail about US hypocrisy um, during the Iraq war, but um, you do make a strong case against pacifism. Um, One of the more painful parts of the book to read uh, is the way that you dissect uh, Virginia Woolf's views during the the Second World War, for example, um, her pacifist views, that not taking action is in itself also a, a decision. Well, uh, the problem is, and this is one that uh, George Orwell identified, uh, I don't think he was right about Virginia Woolf, but about the same time, is this. Yes, uh, pacifism is a uh, uh, perfectly moral way of looking at the world. The problem always arises, and it certainly arose uh, in Wolf's case, it certainly uh, uh, arises now in my time. The problem arises when, um, if you're sincere in your pacifism, you are, say, as opposed to, um, let's take an example, take a contemporary example of Iran, you are as opposed to the, the murders the Revolutionary Guard are um, uh, are now inflicting or have been inflicting in the past year on protesters in Iran as you are to the American assassination of, of a revolutionary guard general. It just, I can never think of an example where that actually works out, where people who call themselves pacifists, you know, devote an equal amount of energy to attacking the other side, if you like, to uh, uh, as they do to attacking the crimes of their own side. And actually, a lot of people, certainly on the British left, who call themselves pacifists or believers in nuclear disarmament, turn out to be, once you scratch them, turn out to be all for violent regimes, violent movements, have no concerns at all about uh, North Korea becoming a nuclear power, Iran becoming a nuclear power. You know, so the, the problem is, is Certainly in positions of prominence and uh, and intellectual prominence, you hardly ever find a real pacifist. It's, pacifism is normally a disguise for, if you like, Negro anti-Westerners. Mm, mm. Yeah. So I'm sorry if I put that a little bit clumsily, but I think you just put it much better. Um, I think you expressed, just expressed much more clearly what I was trying to say there. I was interested in that context in your views on on recent events in Bolivia and um, the ousting of Evo Morales. Would you like to comment on that? I'm very, very wary of of putting a highly complicated political uh, situation in Bolivia with huge ethnic undercurrents of um, uh, Indian Bolivians who have, you know, in one way or another experienced their their own version of of, uh, white rule for centuries. Uh, I'm very, very reluctant to play it out into um, uh, to start laying down law on that. I think it's been for... uh, Morales, it, it seemed to me, had a far wider base of popular support than the Chavistas do. And there's been far less, if you like. I always compare it to sex tourism you get with Westerners who go to a, a oppressive regimes that call themselves socialists. You know, they, uh, just as you get, you know, fat old Western men who could never get an attractive woman to date them in, in London or Paris or, or Frankfurt. You know, uh, go to the third world to uh, pay for sex. So you know, you get uh, Western radicals who go to Bolivia, go to Venezuela, because they can get the socialist frills and the revolutionary brutality that they can't get at home. It's it, it is it is very like sex tourism, uh, that kind of uh, um, we saw. You know, with Chavez, it was extraordinary from, from Britain and Corbyn, from Hollywood actors. Uh, uh, Podemos in Spain, all of them flocking to this hugely, hugely corrupt government that was, you know, basically ripping off the country's wealth, dealing with drug lords, uh, 
you know, Chavez's daughter is now one of the richest mm-hmm. Venezuelans mm-hmm. in history. And how did that happen? Eh? You know, um, um, uh, and again, we, we just go back to what to, to what we were saying before. Un- unless you can criticize your own side and see that your own side isn't really a side. And th- this is something that, that, that I keep trying to emphasize. The, <laughs> the great arguments of any age. It's rare that they're just between left and right. Sometimes they are. But more often than not, the great arguments of any age run through left and right. They're being argued about on the left and on the right. Um, And so you have to be very, you have to be a little wary. As soon as someone says, right, I own, you're a conservative, right, I own, you can't say that, that hurts the right. Well, you say, which right? What right? You know, look, Nick, you can't say that, that that, that hurts the left and you should be concentrating your fire on the right. Well, again, well, well, you know, uh, you can't fit most debates and most debates on principle into into neat blocks mm. at the most basic level there are people that whatever their politics have a belief in truth have a belief in the value of evidence have belief in innocence until proven guilty and then there are other people who will tear everything up tear up every uh standard every protection if they saw a political be- uh, a political benefit in it or if if it suited the, their wider cause. Mm. Mm. I want to return to Brexit and um, what are your predictions? What's your feeling about how it's going to play out and what effect it's likely to have? Are you willing to do a little speculation for us? Okay, well, well let's see what we can say with certainty. It will hurt Britain economically at the time when we haven't really recovered from the great crash of 2008 that that's just certain you cannot uh throw up barriers pull yourself out of the world's biggest free trade area throw up barriers without pain and that pain has already come in several ways uh and that's going to go on for a while because we don't really although we formally left EU, we don't really we're in an interim arrangement we don't uh formally leave for a year's time that's going to happen I think that uh, it's given Scottish independence a new lease of life after they lost the uh, 2014 re- referendum because Scotland voted to remain in the EU, uh, but the wider United Kingdom didn't, so that obviously helped Scottish independence. Um, there's more trouble between Britain and Ireland because Boris Johnson, to get a deal with the EU effectively, has broken up the United Kingdom and put a a border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. It's brought such rancour into British politics. Uh, uh, I think uh, that is going to take a long time to subside if it ever does. I think the Remainers, of whom I am one, have not had real political expression, but we are, uh, if you like, uh, a voice that hasn't shouted yet. There will be huge effect, a huge reaction against it from my side of the argument with very unpredictable consequences down the years. And finally, I just think that supporters of Brexit have been playing with fire, frankly, and they've let nationalist emotions out of the uh, uh, out of their cage, and I think they may have some difficulty in putting them back in. That is, um, that's very worrying. So, Nick, the other book of yours that I have recently reread is You Can't Read This Book, which is about censorship. And I want to ask you where you currently see the greatest um, dangers, threats to freedom of speech, um, and and why within the UK. Let's let's stick to a British context. Uh, I see two. I see. The greatest threat to freedom of speech free people face most of the time is at work. Um, Overwhelmingly, workplaces are mini dictatorships and uh, whistleblowing is not encouraged. Whistleblowers are punished. I think with the new surveillance technology where it's far easier to monitor uh, what people are doing, what people are saying. I mean, soon it may be possible to, to monitor their their emotions. You know, uh, you go into a management meeting and your chief exec is up giving an inspirational speech, and 
human resources be able to tell whether you whether uh, whether you're with the program and cheering him along or think he's a total dick and a waste of space? Uh, that's that's we're not that far off. Uh, I really, really don't like. I don't want to over exaggerate, as I said earlier. Wokeness, political correctness, call it what you will, but I do think that there is a generation coming out of the universities that hasn't, who will go on to be positions of power, whatever their politics are now, will go on to to to, to rule the West, who haven't had the basics of freedom of speech, the arguments about how far it should go and what its real limits are. Uh, they haven't been through that intellectual debate, and have been in the world where it's automatic to shut down free speech without providing sufficient grounds to do it. Now, I mean, you can never you can never predict how people a lot a lot of people will react against that and uh, and that done. But I I do find it worrying that people who now call themselves liberals have very little understanding of the liberal argument for free speech, or, or if they do, very little respect for it. Mm. I mean, I've I've noticed in the news some of the more ludicrous cases that have that have come up, uh, like the guy with his pug dog doing the Nazi salute, and um, the young girl who wrote the lyrics of a rap song on her Instagram, and it contained the N word, and also the guy whose Christmas deck who who is fined because his Christmas decoration said Bell End. Uh, spelled out bell end in lights. Yeah, and I've also um, I've also seen the postings on Twitter by British official British police accounts um, talking about how they are going to crack down on hate speech on social media, etc. There was one in particular, very Orwellian sounding, um, a, a tweet that that one of the police accounts put out which said you may think you're safe behind your computer but we are watching if you are spewing hate we will find you and fine you that that's all of that also seems very um um it seems like a very illiberal and anti-free speech approach and a waste of police time well it's just a um there's a real problem and it needs to be thrashed out with hate speech uh, what is called hate speech? What do you have to prove to make it a criminal offence? Uh, it at the moment it's there's very vague, very woolly in Britain that allows the worst type of police officer to waste his or her time on it rather than uh, solving actual crimes, which uh, I should add the British police are terrible at doing. Uh, we've got the most appalling crime cl- clear-up rate here. If I am a leftist and I denounce conservatives in absolutely vitriolic terms. Is that hate speech? Um, No, because being a conservative isn't a protected characteristic. But the difficulty is, is you you have to prove an injury. The old expansive liberal line that goes back to John Stuart Mill is this. You can, you're free to say what you want. You're free to argue what you want. Uh, as long as you don't incite violence. Now, inciting violence need not be a direct uh, appeal to a mob to go and storm a mosque and kill all the Muslims inside it. Uh, It could be prejudice so um, virulent that, you know, it is reasonable for a court to conclude that someone listening to it could could be inspired to go and storm a a mosque and kill Muslims. The problem is, is the evidential threshold is so very, very low. And we go back to, you know, your world of Modi uh, uh, and my world of, of British Twitter, where you've got people on both sides scanning and scanning and scanning to find reasons to be offended, to find ways that they can whip up their side, whip up their supporters. Um and say, and then as as their anger gets deeper, call on the police to prosecute, um, and call on the police to arrest and the and the and, and the crown prosecution service to prosecute. And once again, what strikes me is how manufactured this all. 
you know, it is it is a lot of people put a lot of work into finding ways uh, to create a fence to uh, make their own supporters into a profitable, uh, both politically and sometimes financially profitable state mm. of rage. Mm. I think if you, know, if you want if you want to ban speech, if you want to say something's hate speech and the police are going to arrest you, the police then have to give evidence of what harm has been done by this speech and that they are very reluctant to do. And if they did that, they would have to cut out an awful lot of it. Well, talking about the proof of harm, one of the things that uh, startled me when I was reading the book, You Can't Read This Book, um, which I have defied the title by now reading twice. Good for you. <laughs> um, I oh, was just how draconian the UK libel laws are and how effectively you can shut down criticism of the wealthy and powerful by appealing to libel laws, which are going to be dragging people through incredibly expensive court processes. And that this has this has nothing to do with partisan politics. This is now about people who are wealthy and powerful being able to shut down. Well, yeah, uh, 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 that, still, that still happens. Although I should say about the only political campaign I've involved in that's ever won anything was uh, the campaign in Britain to reform the libel laws, which I you know, put a lot of effort to and loads and loads of people comedians, actors, journalists, editors. It was fantastic. And we have made the libel laws better. What happens now is you've got people with a lot of money are now using data protection laws. They're using every kind of dog. But you you go back to the oligarchical world in a way where there is a huge network of, of lawyers, of PRs, who will, if you've got the money, use all kinds of tricks to uh, uh, stifle criticism off you. With libel, it has got better. I'm very, very pleased to say that, and uh, you know, quite proud to have been involved in that campaign. It was a classic, you know, uh, free speech liberal campaign, which we, we we've got we we got really quite a long way with it. So it's not as bad as 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 as, as when this book was published. Fantastic. Could you tell me what, what have the changes been to the law? Uh, you have to prove harm, going back to what we were saying before, to some extent. Uh, uh, judges, they you, you can't take the most... They've got to look at normal, reasonable interpretations of words rather than putting them in their most extreme and indefensible form. It, it, things have become a lot more liberal in England as a result of that. That's fantastic. That's very good news. So one of the other themes of the book in what's one of the other themes of what's left is cultural relativism, moral relativism. And I I first encountered this as an undergraduate where I had many arguments with feminists who um were at that point taking the line that female genital mutilation that criticizing female genital mutilation was racist because this is an integral part of certain cultures and the women in those cultures approve of FGM and want to be mutilated. That was the first time I think that I came across this privileging of group rights over individual rights and this sort of fetishizing of culture, I would say. If something is is embedded in a culture, therefore it, uh, we, we should defend it. Have you noticed shifts in the way in which that kind of cultural or moral relativism has been operating on the left? Ooh, ooh that's interesting. Yes, I have a bit. Uh, I, mean, I think just the wave of Islamic, Islamist violence has made people far more uh, suspicious of that. Um, and people aware becoming more aware of... Uh, uh, the dangers of it but i mean still it's not it's not great iona i mean there isn't we go it go it goes back to my own my original point about solidarity if you are a western feminist probably highly privileged you know all other things being equal for your personal life and the problems you have to deal with you know you should be 
feel an instinctive sympathy and sisterhood with, say, people in Somalia or the Somali community in Britain who are campaigning against it. You shouldn't be making excuses for old men and women who want to mutilate a girl's genitalia before she's off an age to give her consent. Mm. You know, why, why are you on, which side are you on? And the, the problem with so much cultural relativism is that it sees the world divided into blocks. It doesn't admit to the facts that there are sides. It just says, no, no, that's their culture. It is monolithic. There are no divisions within. Which, you know, is what the leaders of the culture want people to think because they don't, they don't want to admit the possibility of dissent. But uh, it, it is such a naive and ignorant and ill-informed view of uh, of ethnic minorities in the West and of uh, and of countries beyond the West, it's cheap. It's easy. You just say, "Oh, there's this culture. It's one thing. Modernity doesn't affect it. The Enlightenment doesn't affect it. There are no arguments. Everyone in their state of primal, natural ignorance believes this. So we don't have to choose a side. We don't have to decide. Well, um, uh." Um, because choosing a side is difficult, and choosing a side, you will be accused of racism if you're if you're a white feminist. You will, of course, you will be. Uh, if if you uh, if you if you speak out and uh, and and uh, and interfere, it's it's a simple coward's way out, and uh, and a very pig ignorant way out, if I may say so. Very ignorant way out to pretend that there aren't conflict. Mm. You know, I'm sure I'm I'm sure Modi in India would love to say, no, no, you can't criticise me. I am following Hindu culture. Right. And you get worried, but all, there's a million and one different versions of Hindu culture. There's there's arguments within Hinduism. There's arguments between people. You know, come on. Yeah, and fifteen percent of the country are yeah. not Hindu. That's millions of people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and. And uh, and sector and so on, but you know, it really is a. It's such a let out, and it is such a way of people not thinking, and not realizing how they end up with the most reactionary, the most conservative uh, elements of any culture as soon as they start thinking like that. Yeah, I'm always also especially um, suspicious of unelected spokespeople for a particular culture. Those people. Are often the most conservative. Well, yeah, can be. I mean, it it it, it depends. Look, I've I've no objection to you know um, a bishop at the head of a Christian community speaking about mm. Christianity. You know, uh, that's 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 the way it rolls. That's that's uh, that's how they choose their, choose their heads. And if Christians are under attack uh, in his country, uh, of him speaking out against that. The problem becomes when it gets wider and they start demanding sensitive of others, sensitive of criticism. They start demanding that uh, uh, laws, there isn't one law for all. Laws don't have universal uh, applicability. You can't impose, and it's, it's everything in the end always comes back to you know, attitudes towards women with religion. You can't. You can't give women these rights because that that would offend my community. Well, at that point, you know, it's not the law saying, you know, you've got to teach this in your religion. You can't do this. You can't do that. It's the law saying that rights apply to all women, and you you just have to say, well, if your community is offended, that's just tough. Get over it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've got. I, I guess, this is going on quite a long time. I'm going to have to go soon. I think that's. Uh... That's probably a good note on on which to end. Can you cut that bit out? You don't have to. You can have authentic. This is what it's like at the cold face of podcasting. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's fine. We can have. (laughs) This is what what it really is. This is what it's like. You are an the poor interviewee wants his lunch. (laughs) That's fine. I think we can leave this in. I only had a slice of toast for breakfast. Show some mercy. (laughs) You have been very generous with your time, and I know you're very busy. Uh, man. And I look forward to meeting you in person when I'm in the UK and chatting more. Yeah, we're going to, we're, we're going to have lunch later on. Uh, yes, we are. Go- you're going to have lunch now. And the two of us will have lunch when I'm in London. Okay. <laughs> I've, 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 I've given up alcohol, so I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not as good company as I used to be. Um, 
I'm sure you're still very is that, a, is, is that a problem for you? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's not. It will, it will do my liver good. Yes, it will. Um, on that note, thank you so much for joining me, Nick. It's been my pleasure, Ayana. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus. By becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.